you know, the amount of times I've been woken up in the night and it's just everything you own, which only fit into a black bag anyway, is in the black bag again and we're in the back of a car or a transit van. Can we agree that leadership isn't based on title or position? I have created this podcast to talk to everyday people who lead in extraordinary ways in their everyday lives, both professionally and personally, in the hope that it will inspire everyday people like you and me to realize we are everyday leaders. Welcome to Everyday Leadership. You're not defined by your circumstances, you're defined by how you react to those circumstances. That's one of the best ways I can think of describing my guest today, James Jackson. From dealing with child abuse, to racism, to bullying, to having a broken education which saw him attend 21 schools by the time he was 13. To suicide, depression, and so much more. He didn't let those circumstances, which went off his doing, define who he is. Instead, he grew through those circumstances and situations to become the father, the leader, the friend that he is. And we'll just jump into his story in today's episode. He shares the pain and the struggles he's had, but why he's using that to help other people to not go through what he's gone through, to help organizations navigate their issues around racism, around inclusion. Let's jump straight into it. This is Everyday Leadership. So today I have the pleasure of talking to Mr. James um, Jackson. We started this conversation months ago. And after talking, I said to James, like, we need to, we need to go, come out on the podcast and have a proper, proper conversation. Because in fact, that conversation was around talking about uh, people we, we look up to, talking about the boy next door and all of that. And when you listen to um, James's story that's going to share today, you'll be able to understand why I just needed to share his, what he's been through, how he's managed to navigate that space and come through and keep on thriving and growing and evolving. So how are you doing, James? I'm good, thank you. I'm good, thank you, Sipi. Thank you very much for having me. And just before we came on, I, I asked James a question, which is going to be how we start this podcast, which is how do you cope with having constant conversations around your past and relieving that that trauma? Because for those of you who know that James has had a very, should I call it varied? Varied background um, growing up from child abuse to... <laughs> Challenging, probably challenging. challenging. Yeah, challenging. Challenging is probably the best word. Child abuse, domestic um, racism, bullying, and we're going to delve into how you've how you've coped with all that. But even right about now, having this kind of conversation, how do you feel about it? It's a really good question because you kind of feel you kind of feel two ways about it. If I'm honest, there is the the understanding. Um, in the space that, that, that I work in now, there is an understanding uh, of the need to have these types of conversations to share, uh, as we were talking about um, earlier and then previously have touched on, that lived experience. So you know, there's, there's that way of thinking about it in terms of how do you feel about having the conversation and knowing that you are doing so from a perspective of uh, lived experience, uh, from a perspective of integrity, um, and that you, you can genuinely help others um, understand things and uh, verbalise things uh, and put things in order in in their mind um, and in their soul to some degree in relation to some of what they've experienced and or how they can support others in a mentor relationship or a a, a people management relationship type of way. So there's that that lens of it in terms of you understand the absolute need for it and of course uh, you you commit to it and you, you give everything to it. On the other side, um, the kind of the two ways to, to, to look at it, there is reliving that trauma, um, but you relive it in in a uh, kind of clandestine way. You 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 you, you shed the light um, on some of it, 
but you never really delve into the detail. You are still left to process that yourself. So you're giving people the best version of what's happened to you. You're giving people the um, the uh, diet coke version, if you will, instead of the full fat version. You know what I mean? And, and so this kind of on that second way to look at it, there's kind of like two problems. There's the making sure you're giving enough of yourself and enough of your lived experience, and you know there's enough sugar content if you will in in the in the story and the lived experience that you share for people to take what they need from it but then you're holding so much of that back whilst actually mentally reliving it in the moment and that's quite exhausting um and uh you know as, as we we touched on earlier it was only kind of last week that i took a moment to kind of realize that recent uh um regurgitation of, of, of my lived experience and my trauma and my challenges and a constant recent regurgitation of that um, and then that process I've said giving people the lighter version whilst I retain the full fat version and process that internally again and again um, uh, kind of just left me a little bit a little bit tired a little bit drained last week but I've had a good weekend um, I've had a good 10k walk I've done plenty of things to kind of you know um uh, look after myself, look after my mind, look after my soul, recharge the batteries, ready for this conversation today. To do it all again. <laughs> to get clean and then come and talk to you and get dirty again. <laughs> so, I, you know, can't wait. I can't wait. <laughs> and do you ever think that going through that, people say that, like you just shared right now, you have a right, oh, it's good to be able to share with other people, give them a, a lighter version, a taste of what you've experienced. But don't you ever just get to the point where you're like, actually, no, no's, I'm done. I'm done having that conversation. I'm done reliving that. I'm done talking to people. I'm done sharing my, what I've been through because go read a book or do something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go read a book. Yeah. Um, do you know, um, not yet. It would be, would be the, the succinct answer. Not yet. Um, I might experience that. Uh, you know, uh, some some more months and years down the line. Uh, they, that might just, that might even be just around the corner. I don't know, right? Um, what I what I have found, uh, and you know, and I'm not I'm not you know I'm not ashamed to say this that there is that you know my lived experience is my lived experience, and you know, and, and I didn't pay for that lived experience. And had I had the option to pay for any lived experience, I can damn well tell you when I not bought that story you know what I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't have paid for that journey I wouldn't have paid for that trip uh, I'd have been asking for a refund <laughs> you know what I mean and compensation but because because it is mine uh, you know and, and organizations and, and leaders and, and groups and networks want to tap in tap into that that's fine so I do get to a point where I'm like no, that's, you know, I'll give you a snippet. The rest of it, you're going to have to pay me for now. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, that, that side happens. But in terms of the emotional drain, as it were, I have found uh, on occasion where I might be feeling that, you know, I, I just step back a little bit. Um, what I've done this year alone is, is there's been a, cu- a couple of periods where, you know, I've, I've, I've had downtime from social media. I've had downtime <coughs> from connection and network on the likes of, of LinkedIn or, or other professional networks. You know, there's, there's many other platforms out there. Um, you know, I, I've had, um, I've gone away and uh, I've gone camping, you know, and, and I've told the world I'm going camping and I'm going back to nature and I'm going to, I'm going to fend for myself, catch my own food and, you know, uh, live, live like, live like a caveman and, uh, you know, and just, just get away as well as the incremental bits and pieces that, that you do, you know, the walk or the back to nature or the downtime with the kids or, or um, you know, and, and, and the partner and so forth and so on. You, you, you've got to be mindful of that kind of stuff. Um, uh, I'm developing strategies to kind of avoid what you're talking about, which is, no, I'm done. But the reality is, I'm sure that will come at a point. Um, it, and and that, might, that might come at a point for a day, a week, maybe even longer than that. But um, I'm on this journey now, right? You know, I, I know I've got stuff to give and to share that will help others. Um, I knew that years ago when I started writing poetry for a kind of cathartic therapy and then realised that actually sharing some of this with other people is quite helpful for them. It's quite resourceful for them. Um, you know, I've not done so much in the poetry space lately. I've been more busy in the kind of professional space um, and that kind of equality, diversity, and inclusion space, which I think my lived experience, and what I'm finding is my lived experience, certainly in the terms of the socioeconomically disadvantaged, 
um, and or um, challenged backgrounds, because that's where I come from, that in itself is adding a value and adding weight to the perspectives that I'm giving to organisations and consultatively to, to, to leaders and to, and to people managers. So not yet. It hasn't, hasn't come yet. But it might do. I don't know how, you know, it might do. But um, I definitely could do more, I think, in the self-care space because I kind of have peaks and troughs. Do you know what I mean? I kind of have moments where I do start to feel like that and I'm like, yeah, I'm getting there and I have to do something quickly. What I would rather like to do um, and I need to get better at is find the balance where I don't have the peaks and troughs so much. Um, and find the right avenue um, to continually um, get that that support that I need. You know, like I said, giving some people the diet version, but retaining the full fat version for myself. I think every time, rather than consuming that full fat myself, I should maybe find a way to offload that full fat to someone else. You know what I mean? And, and, and just uh, yeah, tipping down the drain for want of a better word. You know, uh, but obviously in a, in a uh, in an environmentally safe way. <laughs> <laughs> Now, one thing that you've touched on and something that you're definitely doing right now is using your your story and your experiences to shape things positively for other people. And I just want to delve into that uh, a little bit as we as we taste some of that that light coke version of your um, of your story. And um, obviously, growing up as in the foster care system, your mum leaving you at thirteen. How was Sonia. that? Sonia. We call her Sonia. Sonia. Yeah, yeah. Sonia that, leaving that, me at... That M-word, unless it's, unless it's me talking about my kids and their mum, I don't use that word. <laughs> so Sonia leaving you at, at 13, and obviously you had to deal with different things from being in multiple schools. Then you went to, what, 21 schools? Yeah, I, I had an, uh, an utterly broken education. It was... It was uh, scores of schools by, by, by the age by the age of 13 it was a huge amount of schools like 21 it was mad um, and similarly even more 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 addresses more more home addresses than that really really mad we had to move right so the simple truth is and I wrote a poem about this it's called Knock Knock skinny black kid that I was malnutritioned um, malnourished um, uh you know, and, and, and beatings and and, and, and and pain were were a regular and a constant in my in my childhood. Um, um, so you know, knock knock, it's, it's social services, or knock knock, it's the neighbour concerned about the screams from from next door. And you know, the amount of times I've been woken up in the night, and it's just everything you own, which only fit into a black bag anyway, is in the black bag again and we're in the back of a car or a transit van. Um, don't you, I don't know if you remember the, the LDV vans, I think the Leighton D something V vans. I remember that van for some reason. That wasn't even black. It was a white van and it got painted with metal <laughs> gate paint, black, you know. Um, but you, you're in the van again and you're on the move again and, and you know, and you, you know, you're being, you're being walked into a, a new school again and it, it was, I, I can't describe, it was, it was insane, and I, and I, thinking back now and looking at the, the, the social services system and, and, and the care system, and there are tragic stories out there, and there are more tragic stories than mine. You know, there are kids that aren't here today to tell their story, and that's that's the reality. You know, but looking back, um, I'm like, how did no one know? <laughs> how did no one like you know, um, you know, forget forget the bruises, the bumps, the scrapes, the the broken ribs, the the, you know the dislocated shoulders forget the fractured eye sockets forget going to school with these wounds um how did no one know just from being there for a week and moving again and being there for a month and moving again um really really tough things that you look back on you think how did no one pick up on that you know so yeah really broken education in that sense and how did you settle? Obviously, you you were never fully settled, but even in the schools where you were in and out, in and out, did the teachers ever say anything to you? And how did that affect your behaviour at school? Um, interesting enough, i i didn't actually I didn't actually get help um, from a care perspective, from a protective care perspective, till I was till I was thirteen. Um, 
so uh, and, uh, no, I know I don't recall uh, a teacher ever taking me to one side and saying, you know, how you, how are you? How are things at home? I don't recall those conversations at all. Um, how did it affect me in school? Um, I didn't develop uh, half as well as, as, as other children my age. Um, I had the basic principles of, of, of polite manners and a general um, uh, you know, basic vocabulary, um, but I found concentration um, very difficult. I found subjects like maths, science, um, anything from an equative perspective, where we had to do equations, I found it extremely hard to do. Um, I just wasn't developing as, as, as other children were around me. Um, and it wasn't till I was 13, and, and I, I did actually settle in a school where I, I finished my school term so from from kind of like 13 late late 13 years old 14 right through to the end of school I kind of had my kind of two and a half years at one school did my GCSEs didn't particularly do very well in GCSE at GCSE level um but I did well enough and progressed quick enough um to not be phased by the exams to not be put off by you know entering uh, uh, the grading system in at GCSE level at that time but I have a huge amount to thank because my foster carers at that time were actually my grandparents. So um, if you can imagine it, at 13, <laughs> at 13, I got up one Sunday morning to go and play football. The only thing I was allowed to do as a, as a kid was play football or sport. That was it. Um, I think for two reasons. One, it kept me out of the house and out of the way quite a lot. Um, and two, I was all right, Yeah. So, you know, um, uh, to me, run 100, yard, run 100 metres faster than anybody else. I was like, yeah, I can do that. Like, uh, yeah, easy. Bam, 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 gone. You know, uh, uh, I could do that. Um, okay, uh, we, we want to enter you for cross country. So just follow the marshals and, uh, and, 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 and get back as quick as you can. Yeah, yeah, cool. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll win that race. Yeah, well, yeah, okay, I'll represent the school. Yeah, I'll go on and represent the county. No problem. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and all this kind of happened quite quickly. Football, if I could play football, I, I loved football. And, that, you know, at the age of, I think I think it was 12, um, I was playing for an under-14s under, under 14's team. Um, and the manager at the time, um, uh, I don't know if I can name the football club, it was quite bad. But the manager, I won't name the football club, but it was in the Gloucestershire region. <laughs> you know, the Gloucestershire Forest of Dean region. Uh, the manager at the time uh, was slipping my was slipping my was slipping Sonia and and uh, the, the man she was married to you know, at the time my guardians was slipping them twenty five pound a week so that I wouldn't go for trials at uh, Bristol City or, uh, or or Cheltenham or yeah so I was so I was I was earning money as a as a kid off to be kept off the radar and I remember. Because I I I I, uh, I was I was bullied at school, so I did, I couldn't I couldn't play for my year because I was bullied in my year. So I played for the year above, um, and uh, I was I was allowed to play for the year above. I was I was capable and I could hold my own. And we we played the same year in a pre-match friendly, and the same year the year I should be playing for won everything every year, um, and we beat them like ten four, and I scored four goals. And there was all this talk, and da, 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 and and then uh, and then I went into the clubhouse afterwards, and my guardians were just drunk at the bar, never saw any of the goals, kind of thing. And then like back home to to isolation and lockdown in your own bedroom, kind of thing. So, you know, I, I just remember that sport was the only thing I was allowed to do. But at at at, at, uh, at thirteen, I left the house on a Sunday morning, uh, and I never went back. Uh, I never set foot in the house again. I I was allowed to leave to go to football. I left. And um, I, you know, I made my way all the way from Gloucestershire uh, to uh, Halstead in Essex. And I never went back. I turned up at my uncle's door. Because um, the one thing I did have as a kid, and I still got today, is I've got an amazing memory when it comes to geographical travel. I can go somewhere once and get myself back there. I don't know how, I don't know why. Uh, when I was seven, when I was six, six, seven years old, I ran away from home in my pajamas, my red pajamas. Never forget these pajamas. They had 
through pockets in front. You know, you could hold, you keep your hands warm through your pockets in the front. Uh, and I ran away from home and um, I lived the other side of Colchester at the time. Um, and in the middle of Colchester, anybody will tell you, back then there was a huge operational army barracks, massive. And I, at seven years old, walked my way from one side of Colchester, I think it's about nine miles in total, um, navigated through the army barracks, didn't get picked up, didn't get seen, all the way to a place called Home Farm School, where my grandparents lived, knocked on the door and told my grandparents that my, you know, Sonia and uh, what had just dropped me off and then had to go to work early and it dropped me off. And, and ironically enough, I remember thinking back, yeah, everyone's bought this, you know, and that, you know, mama and my mama, you know, uh, my mama, as it was, we refer to some people call them nan, grands, whatever they call them, mama, you know, brought me in, gave, you know, gave me some breakfast, and then walked me around to see my dad, who was gardening, um, and I remember kind of vaguely kind of saying, you know, look, Jim, look, we've got we've got a visitor and and going back with them, trundling back to home farm school at kind of seven thinking, yeah, yeah, I've got away with this. This is great. Um, I didn't. <laughs> and they knew straight away something was wrong, you know. And, um, you know, later that morning, uh, Sonia and, and uh, a gentleman called Frank, who was my sister's biological father, um, they turned up and I was ushered into the living room and uh, this argument ensued in the kitchen from memory and there was a bang crash and a wallop and then I was beckoned from the, the living room and, and, and sent home with, with, with Sonia and Frank on, under the promise that uh, no harm would befall me, um, which, which just wasn't the case. <laughs> but the point is, I've had a fantastic memory in terms of being able to just go somewhere once, see uh, see the road signs, see the names, see the, uh, the, the, the you know the um, points of interest, and, and just get myself there. And, and I learned that at seven in my pajamas at like five o'clock in the morning. So, and I did it again at thirteen um, to go and play football, and I never went back. Do you ever look back and think about what could have been as a football player? Potentially, I don't um, consciously. I actually I don't because I try not to look back on the the experiences I had with um, resentment uh, and regrets. Uh, you know, I don't think it does well to do that. And, and look, let me be honest. I have done, <clears throat> I have done that. You know, I've spent many a year doing that. Um, you know, through my adolescent kind of teenage years and, and as I became a young man, but. I think by the time I hit 20, became a father for this for the first time, lost my father, who I'd had um, no relationship with till I was kind of like 13, 14. And then I got to know this 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 man um, who taught me so much in such a short space of time and we became close, but lost him due to due to, to cancer and complications at the age of 20, um, weeks before, just weeks before I became a dad, actually, myself. I think by that point... And my father played a big part in helping me uh, departmentalise some of the pain, some of the trauma, and not to do that, not to regress and not to live with that um, with that regret and that resentment. Um, I remember him saying to me once, uh, I think I was about 16, and I, I'd, you know, I, I came to Nottingham to visit him and spend a weekend with him or spend a week with him or so and so on. And, and at the time... Um, I just celebrated my birthday and I think I got upset because, you know, I've just turned 16 and, uh, you know, I, I have no mother, if you will. I have no I have no mum kind of thing. And I think it upset me. Um, and I remember him saying to me, deadpan, stone face, and he had a fantastic ability to summarise something into a, such a succinct sentence in a way that it just landed and it stuck with you, you know. Um, but he said to me, he said, um, why are you why are you upset by this you know um you can't make someone be your friend who doesn't want to be your friend um and I don't quite think he realized the power of what he said but in that moment I was able to kind of disenfranchise from Sonia as a mother and the need and want for any relationship um and the pain that that caused me by not having it um and and kind of that helped me not do the regressive piece um so do I look back and think what could have been? 
Yeah, of course I do. You know, I'm watching, I'm watching Obama Yang on the on the Unreal. I watch Sky Sports, Thierry Henry. You know, I like to think we could have been on a <laughs> we could have been a strike team. You know, uh, I had that about me. I was I was number ten. Uh, I had pace. I had an eye for goal. Um, you know, and I've I've subsequently gone on and played football, and I played football at okay. You know, I never you know okay status, but um, no, I don't really. I don't really. I, don't really. I, I need to ask as we're talking about football. Why did you support Arsenal? Like, we... <laughs> yeah, why did I support Arsenal? Yeah, because, you know, I've got no place of origin, right? You know, I've moved about so much. Um, and then um, Nottingham feels like home. You know, I've, I've come back to what feels like home um, after living in Northumberland, Halifax, uh, Essex, uh, Suffolk, everywhere, you know, ain't no corner of this country I don't know, <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Um, you know, I, I, I think I think it's weird because, you know, like my partner, we, we're driving somewhere and I'm like, yeah, I've been to school there. <laughs> She's like, what? We're <laughs> in Glasgow, we're in Glasgow. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, no, I, I, joke, I joke a little bit, I just a little bit. But um, why do I support Arsenal? Ian Wright. It was at the time that I was really taken to football and, and kind of realising that I was faster than any other kid on the pitch at, against every team I played. And I was, um, I could get to the ball in the air above anybody. And, you know, and you know, overhead kicks, I was like, bang, top corner, thank you. Yeah, you know, just running off like, yeah, standard. I, that's what I do. Um, Ian Wright was the footballer. He was the footballer. He was... He was coming through. I think he just signed, or he signed for Arsenal, and he was banging goals left, right, and centre. I think Aswad released the track. Um, come on, and shine, shine like a star, you know. And then there was a rap in there about Ian Wright's goal, and the crowd is roaring. And I just took to Ian Wright, um, and I took to Arsenal, and and I, I just, I've just stuck with it. You know, Arsenal became my team. So. Oh, the good old days. I wish we can go back. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Good old days, good old days, yeah. When we had when we had a team. When we had a team yeah. indeed. Yeah. Now to go back to your um your story and actually conscious of the fact that it was it was national it was a men's day last week. And even conversations we've had in the past around um like depression and suicide and stuff like that. You saw you're you're someone that's contemplated that in the past. And it's a topic that I know for for men especially, it's really hard to to talk about. And it's the reason why the suicide rates are so high. And um, you've been always been someone that's been very open, fortunate and vulnerable around that, that area. So I just wanted to ask that, like, how do you, one, why do you find it, or how do you find it easy to talk around, if you do find it easy at all? And then what are the feelings wrapped around that? And why is it so important for guys, generally speaking, to actually talk about their feelings and deal with those kind of thoughts that they might have as well? I think, first and foremost, experiencing the trauma and talking about the trauma are two very different things, right? So, you know, I think anybody would say, uh, and I would say and testify that um, talking about the trauma and the effects that it has on mental health compared to living it, I'll take talking about it every day of the week and twice on Sunday. Because living the trauma, um, you know, ritualistic suffocation, scolding, burning, throwing downstairs, starvation, you know, I, I, can, I can go on, I can go on. Living that, is 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 worse than any conversation that you you know you're going to have. Um, uh, losing a loved one like my father at a at a young and critical age, um, going through that, uh, you know, talking about that um, compared to living it, you know, I choose talking about it any day of the week. So when people say to me, "How do you find the strength to to talk about it?" or you find it easy, uh, I, I correct them and say. It, is, it isn't easy, but the strength comes from I recognise uh, the fact that I've survived. I recognise the fact that I, I am here. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I was suffocated as a child routinely. Um, and, and the two forms of suffocation I endured was typically a hand over the mouth and nose or a pillow over my face, smothered. Um, 
and I would be suffocated for crying loudly because I've been hurt and I was in pain to be, you know, to effectively keep the neighbours from, from, from inquiring about the, you know, the welfare of said child in the, in the home, being myself. Um, I've been suffocated for defending my sister. Uh, you know, I had a, had a baby sister um, and I've seen her uh, take a slap and, and, and you know, I, I'd, I'd rush to her aid and, and defend her and, I've, I, you know, and then I'd get a beating and so forth and so on. So, I've, well, I don't recall ever, I never recall the pillow lifting off my face and I never recall the hand lifting off my face. I can vividly remember multiple occasions, multiple locations, multiple rooms where the suffocation begins, but I never recall it ending. Um, I don't know if that's because I it did and it must have done because I'm here, but in what way, I don't know. Did I wake up in bed? Did I wake up on I don't recall. So the fact that I've survived that, um, the fact that I've uh, survived two thought-out occasions where I thought, this is it, I just want to switch the light off, I want to close all the noise in my head, I want to close all the noise and expectation and, and stress and strain of life and trying to succeed with the start compared to the start that I had and so forth and so on. Surviving that... And, and still being here, that gives me strength and um, talking therapies have helped me, helped me identify that I have a resilience that I didn't even recognise for years that I had. Um, so talking about it's easy in that respect. Um, but talking about it isn't easy because you've got to talk about it and just teeter on that, that brink of not falling into it emotionally because it's easy just to break down and cry. You know, it's easy. You know, um, I, I I became an author uh, some years ago in terms of a cathartic form of therapy and, and I created poems by a boy and, um, uh, and 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 I wrote a series of poems uh, under that, that 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 pseudonym, if you will, because I was totally um, what you call it uh, off the radar. I never gave any identity away to who poems by a boy was for for some time. Um, and you kind of write the poem in that cathartic therapy of getting it out and putting it on paper meant that it wasn't inside anymore. And that was, that was a way of working through that. But it's, you know, you've got to be careful not to get too emotional with it and kind of let it break you down. Um, so it's not easy. It's, it's a, it's a tightrope that you walk. Um, but recognizing the resilience and the survival today, that's got me here today means that it's easier to talk about. Um, but it's the kids that make me, do it um i you know i hate i hate the thought of my son um, any of my children you know uh, thinking that i that i you know I, they can't talk to me um about how they feel the the the, the thought of my son um or, or again any of my children but I, I suppose i relate to my son more because of being a boy but the thought of of any any of my children or anybody for that matter um contemplating suicide thinking it through going for a walk uh, at night, finding the spot, thinking this is the bridge I'm going to jump off or I'm going to drop in front of the next train that comes from and sitting there looking down at the train lines and looking ahead for the, the lights of the next train that's coming whilst you know being 20 yards away from the main road and kind of hoping that someone sees you but realising that actually nobody does and that's part of the problem because nobody can see you. They can't see your pain, your struggle and it's only you that you're living it so that kind of infest it gets into your brain it poisons you to think that there's no way forward and that's why you're sat on the bridge to think that anybody would be in that position and anybody I love and truly care for in terms of my children would be in that position and they couldn't talk to me scares me more than anything and so talking about it and being an advocate I'm absolutely fine with and if it's if I have to shoulder some pain and some trauma to help anybody avoid being in that situation and if that's all I leave this world, then I'll do it. I'll take it. It's no problem. You know, I will take that trauma, that experience. I'll take that pain and that spite and that hurt and I'll do some good with it wherever I can. Um, and whether that's lending it to a lived experience from an equality, diversity and inclusive perspective, uh, lending it to a mental health perspective as an advocate and combining the two, right? Black men don't talk about mental health. Black men don't talk about, you know, black culture doesn't talk about it. We can talk about religion, Oh, God, nans, grandads, elders, aunties, uncles. We can talk about religion, blood, blood, fire, all day long. You know what I mean? 
we can talk about food. We can talk about yeah. rice, peas, plantain, you're going to stodgy rice and you know, fried. We can talk about that all day long. We can talk about music, culture. We can talk about all sorts, but we don't talk about mental health. As a, you know, certainly from a West Indian background and the West Indian culture, we don't done. You know, I mean, I'll fix up and carry on. That's, you know, it's, yeah, okay. You know, um, so, uh, you know, I don't know if that answers the question per se and directly, but it isn't easy. But that's, you know, the children make me do it. The, the, the wanting to help others make me do it. The fact that, uh, you know, I've survived it, it's easier than living it um, uh, or reliving it makes me do it. So, and yeah, um, it's the right thing. It's the right thing. Every, every, everybody should be able to have these conversations. Um, I need to be having these conversations because it's 2020 and the world knows that there's a problem with mental health. It knows that. And, and we need to be doing more to just face up to that. And, uh, you know, I don't think, interesting enough, you know, we're here talking about everyday leadership and I've never really judged myself as a leader in that space. But where I have had responsibility of, of, of people management and, and managing teams and managing colleagues in the workplace, you know, I decided long ago that I would I would start every one-to-one, every uh, interaction with those individuals in a structured base or an impromptu base with a, two questions. Number one, rating of one to ten, how are you? In work, how's the role? How's this? How are you? Tell me one to ten. They give me a score. I'd make a note of that score, you know, as, as part of the, the notes from the one-to-one. Um, and we talk about why they might be said seven or why they maybe said nine or why they said 10 um, or why they said three and, you know, or whatever not. Um, and then I would always ask the same question from a, but how are you? Now tell me one to 10, how are you? And I would always make a point of putting the pen down. I would never make notes. I would just give them the space to talk. Now, for some people, they took that. All, you know, and I, you know, and they took it, and we would have conversations about them and their work-life balance and, and the things going on at home, and then we could, we could branch off into other conversations about how we maybe could support them more. Um, some didn't engage it as, as much and would say, yeah, you know, and they give you the standard, yeah, I'm okay, everything's all right, and so on and so on. But what I found as, as a manager of people, um, as a leader, is that, you know, when you come to the next one-to-one, it's such a simple thing but you just review your notes, you ask the same question, and in the prep of that one-to-one, you record the score from last time. And sometimes it goes up, and sometimes it goes down. And you know where it goes down or up? You just ask the question, why has it changed? And you follow on a thread, and it shows consistency and, and integrity that you actually care, and you're following on the discussion, and you're creating the space. And quite often, you then have a mental health, emotional, supportive discussion from that. So... Whether that's leadership or not, um, pastoral care, I don't know. But just creating that space is the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. So how would you describe leadership then? How would I define leadership? Um, Selfless. I think leadership is selfless. I think you you must be willing to put others before yourself if you truly... Um, adhere to what it means to be a leader. Um, you must share your success and you must shoulder the responsibility for failure rather than put that on others because ultimately you are leading in that space. And someone once told me, and it's resonated with me, and I've, I've passed it on as well, leadership's like loving your kids, right? So... Certainly as a people manager or a program manager or a project manager or, you know, a a strategic leader, a tactical leader, leadership is like loving your kids. You you, you try and bring your kids on a journey with you. You try and educate your kids, influence your kids, but ultimately you love them unconditionally. You trust them. You don't ask them to demonstrate, you know, their trust to you before you give them that trust. You trust your children. Um, You just give them all of you. Um, and in my experience, good, good parents, <laughs> bad parents, <laughs> you know, I don't expect my kids to love me back. I want them to, I, of course I want them to, I, I want them to adore me, you know, and as, you know, they'll never adore me as much as I adore them, but I want them to. 
But ultimately, I don't expect it back. And I don't look for it back. I just give. I give you the guidance, the support, um, everything you need and enough of what you want is my kind of mantra with, with, with my children, just to keep them grounded and at a level. But I think it's the same in leadership. And I approach people management the same way. I trust people from the outset. I trust what they tell me. I trust that what the abilities they say they have, the capabilities they say they have, and then we test that over time and we understand that you know. And sometimes it works out, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes people need more support, more encouragement, more direction. Um, but I don't expect them to like me for it because ultimately, sometimes the, the path that we're leading isn't the path they want to tread. Um, I remember uh, a couple of years ago, uh, I set about a, a program of, of, of technical training and. It was very clear from day one that the infrastructure that was in place at the time, the processes and the behaviours were just archaic. They were just out of date. They were unsafe and it needed a total transform. But the people in it that were comfortable and, and, and living and breathing it and were happy with their autonomy didn't want that at all. And so there was an element of applying that, okay, I'm going to lead you on this journey. I'm going to trust you. And I know you're going to, I know I'm going to get bitten at times, but you know what, when it happens, we're going to face up to it. We're going to talk about it. I'm going to give you direction and give you optional um, kind of uh, perspective, positive gain and benefit for you, for the, for the process, for the organization. Um, and you slowly you'll come around, but all I'm going to do is I'm going to treat you not like children, but treat you like my kids and give to you. And eventually that will repay me. Do you know what it did? And um, we transformed that program of technical training, and we, you know, I, I, you know, was able to to lead and project lead, and, and from vision right through to kind of uh, you know physical placement, uh, building an academy of excellence, and it was probably one of the best things I've ever done in my career. Uh, certainly, one of the things that gave me the greatest pride. But in terms of that philosophy of treat them like treat 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 people, treat your team like your children, love them and hopefully they'll love you back over time. It, that, that played out very well. Wow, that is powerful. And I I definitely agree. It's um, when you have that kind of approach where it's very selfless, servant leadership kind of focused, it makes such a massive impact. And you're going to get burnt. It's just natural. That's how people are. But... Oh, man, <laughs> let me tell you, let me tell you, I've been burnt. I've been burnt. And not just by not just by people in work. My own kids have burnt me. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I mean, I love them dearly, but blood. <laughs> I'm telling you. So yeah, you, you get burnt. You get burnt. But that, that's, that's part of it. That, that's what you sign up to. You know, if, um, that's what you sign up to. And it, it, even in what I do now, so, you know, I'm not, you know, I, Am I a leader? Maybe I try to be. Maybe I want to lead thinking. I want to lead diversity growth. I want to lead, I want to lead people down a path of equity um, and on a journey to, to, to true inclusion. Um, but, it, you know, some people may like what I've got to say. Some people may not like it. Some organisations may like the way I do things and may not. And, you know, in this space, you've got to call things out, right? You've got to say that you know that, that ain't that ain't good enough. Like you know, you know that's tokenism. That that that's that's passive allyship. You ain't really on board here. And and so again, in that space, I give. I'm not saying you're gonna like me, <laughs> you know. And I might get burnt. And um, uh, you know, recent uh, professional experience kind of saw me go into an organisation and think it was going to be all this stuff and, and great and. And it didn't turn out to be like that, and I got burnt. Uh, uh, you know, I got burnt, and I, I got I got hurt by it, really. But you know, I stayed true to me, and you know, and then I took on the next challenge. So, uh, which is all I've ever done. You know, um, I, I I do get emotional. I can get emotional. I'm not I'm not one of these guys that can't cry. I I can cry. I can cry. Well, I can cry at Christmas advert, boy. <laughs> so I mean. Uh, the Audi advert with Kevin in the carrots gets me every time. <laughs> I just, I just a little bit. You know, I'm not one of these guys that, that won't show his emotions, you know, in, in both ways. You know, I wear my heart on my sleeve, uh, and I, you know, professionally and, and, and in the home. Um, but, I, you know, someone said to me, like, you know, how have you got here? You know, I, I, broken education, very difficult childhood, um, I've got no degrees to speak up. I've got no degrees. I didn't go to university yet today. And uh, I got, this is this is fortuitous that we're talking today. Today I did something that no other member of my family has ever done. Today I lectured at a university. Um, and it hasn't quite sunk in yet, but 
Today, I delivered a lecture uh, at a university, um, St. Mary's University in Twickenham, on inclusive marketing uh, within their module and framework of learning, their live learning week eight, for, uh, on how to be a marketing manager. And uh, I, I was, it was nerve-wracking, and I've been putting it off for weeks. <laughs> so, you know, self-limiting belief, um, imposter syndrome, you know, all of that been, 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 been grabbing at me every single day. But I did it. And, uh, you know, and I'm, you know I'll, I'll share a little bit more about that, you know, in, in the coming days. But, yeah, there is a moment that says, I, I can't, I don't understand how. You know, I've just taken the opportunities that came along. I've listened, I've learned, um, I've assimilated. And I would give this advice to anybody from a disadvantaged background um, from a socioeconomically challenged background, you know, look, we, we don't have the tutorage in terms of, you know, sometimes how to pronunciate, how to frame a sentence, how to uh, write a paragraph. You know, we, 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 these things escape us. We don't have that. But by assimilation and picking up on, on where people are doing that well, um, uh, you know, and, and copying that, not copying it in terms of taking credit from other people, but copying it and applying it to the way that you apply yourself and the way that you put yourself forward has done me a great deed. Um, and like I say, you know, I had a mama that would give me licks if I didn't pronunciate properly and if I, you know, and would challenge my vocabulary all the time. So I, I, I you know, uh, blessings and, and to, to her for, for all the help that she'd given me. And when I, I actually saw her at the weekend and I told her on Sunday that I was going to be lecturing this week and uh, I just took a moment to say I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for you. If it wasn't for you picking me up on my language and, and how I pronunciate and how I speak, I just wouldn't be in this space. Because beyond that, I've just taken the opportunities that, that came my way and kind of gone, yeah, I want a piece of that. I want a piece of that action. I want to be a, a learning and development professional and I want to show you how you know the benefit of learning and development organ, uh, function within your organisation that you don't have today. So I took a gamble and... You know, I reached out to the CEO of a small startup business. I did a presentation. I did all the, the research, the background, and they went, yeah, we need that function. And you know what? We need someone to lead that function. Do you want to have a go at this? Yes, I do. And then I, that, was my, that was my baptism of fire into L&D. And then from there, I joined a, a big utility company and, and worked my way up through learning and development, operational learning and development, to um, customer experience and immersion, and then into... Um, into into quality, diversity, and inclusion, and, and kind of took that lens and, and gone on there. And in 2020, which has been a crap year, whoa, Jesus, this year has been terrible. But early this year, um, I got burned, um, and I got I got a, I got a professional uh, setback that I've not had before. Um, and I found myself unemployed at the start of April 2020, just as we went into a national lockdown and everything was going to stop and there was going to be a recession and no one's got any jobs. And I was like, right, OK, I've got two choices here. I can sit on my backside and I can wait for the opportunity to come to me or I can get up off my backside and I can create that opportunity. So that's what I did. I got off my backside and I looked to create opportunities and I took all my wealth of experience, repackaged that. Um, I set about establishing next-gen learning. I set about um, establishing and co-founding space to talk and, and that created opportunities and doors opened and, and here I am today doing what I'm doing um, for UK Atomic Energy Authority as an EDI partner and, and, and so forth and so on. And, you know, I would just say to people, like, you, you've got to apply what you've got to the best of your ability. And as long as you're doing that, I believe opportunities will, will come your way. Um, but sometimes it's fortuitous, sometimes it isn't. But you, it needs resilience. It, it needs someone telling you, you know, you can do this, you, you, can, you can make something of yourself. Everybody needs that encouragement. Um, certainly from that kind of economic disadvantaged background, we, we need that. We need those role models. But what I find challenging in that space at the moment is that those role models that are available, right? They've made it, you know, they've made it, you know, and, and, and I've given this feedback at a number of events I've been to, fantastic event, fantastic panelists, really loved that, great, inspiring, da-da, but, you know, there is a disconnect with a huge proportion of the population that you're trying to connect with because 
They can't see the steps between where they are to where you are. You've got your MBE. You've got your OBE. You've, you've initiated your charity, Dada So Forth and so on. You've got your senior directorship role. And it's fantastic and it's great. But, you know, what about the guys in the middle? What about the people in the middle, the, you know, the, the different demographics and the different intersectionality in the middle, still in the quagmire, finding their feet? They're the people that others can connect with quicker. Because, you know, from them... Just to go from here to this middle run is a massive achievement. It's huge. Yeah, yeah, it's massive. But we ain't hearing from the people in the middle run because these uh, organizations, these groups, they they want to pay for panelists to appear and have a conversation that, yeah, I've done this, I've done that. And, and great, and that's lovely. But what about paying people in the middle run to kind of come and talk at these events and get their lived experience and their value so they can connect with the people better? Not that you know, who you've got isn't inspiring. Yes, they are. But, you know, I've been to these events and I'm like, MBE and then and, and you set up a charity and you've got this business and you're a director here. And I'm like, I, I ain't, I ain't, I, I can't see that. You know, I don't, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sat here today like a director of my own business. <laughs> it's a bit, you know, that's a bit wrong of me to say that. But, but you know, but I did, but not not through the channels that they did. I had to I had to grasp that. It's a different, it's a, it's a different way. Path, yeah. You know? Um and, and I think there's not enough of that happening for 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 any for any for anybody. It doesn't have to be social, economically, and challenged backgrounds. If you've got a disadvantage, you could be less able-bodied than 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 the general populace. You could be a woman in a heavily masculated genre, genre or industry. whatever your particular particular uh potentially or potential disadvantage where the middle run hear from the people on the middle run that have made that initial step because they're the ones that are inspiring to me that's why i wanted to talk to you that's what, exactly yeah, why i wanted yeah, to have yeah, this yeah, kind yeah, of conversation yeah. i wanted to talk to you james because you haven't yet made it <laughs> you know, on the middle run yeah thanks sir ben. thanks <laughs> So we talk about. So we talk about um, people being relatable and people being able to tap into. You know what? I've been through hard times from growing up from the different schools, from parenting to losing parents to depression, suicide, all of that. I didn't have a education as such, and yet I've managed to craft a life and career a business of family which not only helps you but helps other people and you're giving back and you're creating space to talk you can go and lecture at universities that you even go to and you can tell them and do it in a very authentic way that for me is realness that for me is leadership so and that's why i was like i needed to like get you on to have that real talk i, I love those kind of people because i can relate to those kind of people so i understand the mbs i understand everything they've done how much and how hard work they've grafted to get in those kind of spaces and there's an avenue for them but like you said there isn't another it's like it's an avenue for them that's it there's nothing else in that middle in that middle play and people need to be able to connect with people in that middle people be able to they can look up and be like right that's levels up there but that's way too far that next that next level up there wrong okay I can that's a bit aspirational that I can connect to that can help me get up to the next level and they can keep on climbing and that's what you need like someone on, on every rung of that ladder that keeps you pushing that keeps you pulling you up that keeps you saying yep you can do this you can aspire to that being encouraging and that's why your story is so powerful when we talk about a year of resilience has been the word that's buzzed around this year but that's something for from growing up from that background. That's just that's just life. <laughs> we've had to <laughs> we've had to be resilient. Yeah, you've yeah, had to adapt. Yeah. You've had to pick yourself up. And you talked about it when you said you created a lane for yourself. You had a choice where you can sit down your ass and be like, you know, I lost my job. What am I going to do? Am I going to mourn and complain, or am I going to tap into my skill set that I already have and create something new for myself? And you did exactly that, which is absolutely phenomenal. I don't really, uh, yeah. It's it, it, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, what can I say? It's it's just it's been it, like you say. It, that's our life, right? So people are talking about a tough year and stuff like that. And I'm thinking, boy, well, hey, you know, this yeah. is a tough year. But I've had some tougher years. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've had some tougher years. <laughs> yeah, I've got a roof over my head, food on the table. <laughs> I'm all right. Um, I think, I, I, I think for me, there is. 
there's there's a key thing that 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 certainly the youth of today they have an advantage. I will say this: the youth of today have an advantage. The channels and access to resources, support, um, and opportunity, I think, is it's never been greater. Um, it's never been greater, and you know. So when 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 I talk to young people today, and I, and I do that, you know, I've got a couple of people that I mentor. Um, and then they talk to me about their challenges. I do, I don't pull punches. I do make them, you know, it's not hard, it's not tough love, but there is an element of, you know, you know, dry your eyes a bit, you know, dry, dry your eyes a bit. You know, it's a real talk. Yeah, real talk, <laughs> yeah, real talk. But, you know, the perspective, these, these opportunities are there in, 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 in greater, greater, greater depth than they've ever been before. But on the flip side, certainly a couple of, uh, couple of uh, young professionals that, that, that I work with who come from a, a non-white epic background, kind of like, you know, the, the ethnic population, sexuality and cultures, non-white epic background, or traditionally we call it Bain. They, um, they are, they're finding it tough right now. Um, and what I, what I don't recall because of the same advancement in technology in the digital age, what I don't recall as a child, I recall racism, I recall discrimination, I recall bias. I know what opportunities were available to me and what they weren't and why. And certainly in many places I grew up, because I can tell you now, in every single school I've ever walked through, I was the only black kid. Every single school. I've never lived in a ethnic, diverse part of this country which I don't you know I don't know why um, you know uh, Sonia didn't like black people she should have thought about that maybe before she got with my daddy I don't know <laughs> but you know um, I don't know why but uh, but what I have said what I have said is it's difficult times for a couple of youngsters at the moment um, with the kind of race relations and the climate in the UK at the moment um, because there's a lot of emphasis on that and whilst that's great from a supportive perspective it can also be a hindrance um, in terms of how they feel and how they progress, so uh, yeah, they, they, but the opportunities in general are greater than, than they've ever been before. So I think you know there are people that will follow me that will do what I've done to a greater extent and have greater impact. Definitely, easily. I think that I, I agree. So when I look back, I think people, generally speaking, the next generation are they're on a, on a different level, but they also need the help of people like like yourselves to give them that that encouragement, that mentorship, that advice to navigate. And you combine that, uh, which we didn't have with their experiences and their access to technology or that kind of stuff, they're going to take it to a whole completely different level. That's why it's always so important to just keep on like speaking up, being in those kind of spaces, encouraging them and keep on the fantastic work that you're, you're currently doing. Because even not just from our professional perspective, even from like a mental wealth perspective, if we're having conversations that we had today around like being vulnerable, being able to express your feelings, all that kind of stuff. All of that is so, so important, which is not always talked about. Yes, we, mental wealth is talked about a lot more nowadays, but it still needs to be put a lot there, especially for people from um, ethnic backgrounds. It's still a cultural stigma behind, behind those kind of conversations. So that needs to change, definitely. And the last question I want to ask you, what does success look like to you? You know what? That, that's really hard for me because I haven't quite tapped into that yet. I don't know. Um, is the honest answer. I know. I know. In these kind of two lenses, I think no, three lenses actually. I'd apply to that. What does success look like to me as a as a father, as a parent? What does success look like to me as a professional? And what does success look like to James? Um, and um, I'm going to sound a bit. I'm going to sound a bit weird here. Uh, I'm not schizophrenic, right? But uh, there are two people that live in my head, and I, I, I promise that I would. I promise that I would share this today, um, because very, very few, less than a handful of people know this. So I'm going to share this. There are two people that live in my head. There is James, and there is Jack. Um, James is James is is the polite, um, courteous, considerate professional. Um, he's the the one that you know 
talks this way and pronunciates and uses an extensive vocabulary to um, explore feeling and purpose and uh, objective. Um, that's James. And, and James approaches most things first and foremost, yeah? Um, he's the one that kind of systematically, pragmatically looks at things, logically breaks it down and kind of goes, that's the way to approach this, that's the way to do that, so forth and so on. Um, and then there's Jack. Jack is not quite like James. <laughs> uh, Jack is um, <clears throat> uh, angry <laughs> uh, at quite a lot. <laughs> um, and he's also, he's street, right? Jack is street. Jack is, Jack is, so, you know, I've, I've done many jobs in, in my time. You know, I've, I've, I left school, I did electrical apprenticeship um, as an electrical installation engineer. Um, I've worked in retail. Um, I've worked on the door. I spent seven years working on the door, kind of Thursday, Friday, Saturday, sometimes Sunday, back holiday nights. Um, and it was interesting because uh, James would always greet people on the door. Yeah, I believe working on the door is, you know, is 90% polite and manners and respect. Um, but it was Jack that would say, yeah, enough's enough now, you know what I mean? You, there's the line, cross it if you would. You know, it, it, so, and Jack has always looked after James. And I want, to, I want to stress this today in terms of what success looks like. I don't know quite what success looks like. As a parent, I think success looks like, you know, my kids are happy and healthy. They have everything they want, enough of what they need. And when I depart this life, I leave them with more than I, I had, both in experience, love, affection, but absolute confidence in themselves to be themselves and be the best they can be at whatever they want to do. And the fact that they never have to question that they were loved because... I think as a, as, a, as a child, having done that, there's nothing worse than questioning whether or not you're loved by those that you should never question. Uh, so that, that's it as a parent. As a professional, I simply want to just give back as much as I can um, and, you know, put a roof over my head, uh, food on the table. Um, I'd like my work to pay for a spiritual journey to Africa. That's something quite specific that I've identified as an objective. I want to walk barefoot in Africa one day and I'd like the work that I do to pay for that. Um, um, not for long. I might burn my feet, but <laughs> I, want, I want to walk for a while. I'm not, I'm not a fan of creepy crawlies, so, you know, I don't want to go too far, but I do. Um, and I want to stand up and I want to engage uh, hundreds of people. I want to engage youth and I want to inspire youth. Yeah, so that, professionally, that's what success looks like to me. And I kind of did that a little bit today. I, you know, I did something I never thought I'd do, and I'm doing more of that through Space to Talk and through the work I do, the apprenticeships and um, and, and the EDI partner that role that I have now. But personally, James, Jack has always looked after James. James gets hurt. James is fragile. James is sometimes the boy inside the man who struggles. Um, and when he does, Jack picks him up every time. Now, whether that's picked me up off the floor, you know, from a beating, whether that's in the home or whether that's as a, as a, as a boy walking back from the fair and being battered and, and kicked through a fence panel just because I'm black, because I'm different. Whether that's even now as an adult, you know, I try not to regress and I genuinely don't regress but there are key times in the year where that's difficult and Christmas is coming around and that's a difficult period for me. Um, wonderful as a parent, difficult as a child with no parents um, for various reasons. Um, Jack is the one that picks me up. And there's a great, there's a great poetic performance by, by a guy called Daniel Beatty. I'd encourage anybody listening to this to go onto YouTube and check it out. The poem, the poetic performance is called Dual Identity and it, it's called, he is called Dual Identity. And Daniel Beatty talks about um, uh, the black guy and the, uh, uh, the, the Sutton in me, the, the, the N-word in me. He talks about, you know, the tough, the tough the streets in me. And, um, and I can relate to that. It's an Americanism in terms of the theme and he's an American poet and, and performer. But exactly to that point, there is... James and there is Jack and success to me ultimately from a James perspective is when Jack has no role to play anymore um, I don't want to get rid of Jack I would never never I would never push Jack out I would never make Jack homeless but when Jack doesn't have to step up and pick James up off the floor 
you know, at key periods in the year and at key times when challenges hit. And then that might not be, for, you know, that might not be achievable in terms of, you know, there will always be tough things that Jack will, will, will be there for. But still today, Jack has to pick James up too often in my, in my life, for me, for my liking. And I would like it to be a case where for James, success looks like that doesn't have to happen anymore. We only call on Jack when, you know, I don't know. To regulate. Someone picked on one of the kids and I need to lay a slap down, you know what I mean? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Which I would do, by the way, make no mistake. The other day I went to the school and they got this queuing thing because of COVID and it was raining and my, my little girl is stood in the rain just getting wet and people are queuing and I'm like 20, I'm like, brass, I'm sorry, I just, I'm like, no, Grace, come now in the car, I'm getting my daughter wet. What are you talking about? You're getting cold. So there is always going to be a space for Jack and I'm never going to make him homeless, but when Jack doesn't have to pick pick James up and, 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 and take care of James so often, that's what success looks like for me. Wow, that is a powerful note to finish on. And again, I just want to say thank you very much to, um, to James. I'm going to put links in the show notes around different things involved with like space to talk, which is fantastic. Like you have a real talk conversation. Space to talk is, is definitely a great one. Great avenue that he's created. And there's loads of stuff he puts on, on LinkedIn as well that you can definitely tap and get involved with. And once again, I really appreciate you just sharing, sharing your story, sharing your journey. Congratulations on the talk today. I was like, yes, I was rooting for you. I was like, come on, James. So, <laughs> so it's definitely come like full cycle. And it's great to hear those those kind of stories from where you came to where you're right now and for so much more that you've got planned ahead of you that I know you're going to accomplish as you keep on paving the way for those coming behind us and making a difference. So really appreciate it. And this is what a leader looks like. Remember that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you Right, it's Everyday Leadership. I'll see you soon. I just want to say thank you to everyone who has listened to the podcast in 2020. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to the feedback. I also want to say a massive thank you to all the guests who've turned up, who've shared their words of wisdom and made this possible. There's so much more to come in 2021. But for now, we're taking a break. We'll see you on the side. Have a great Christmas and a wonderful new year. This is Everyday Leadership. Don't forget, I have show notes on my website, everydayleadership.buzzsprout.com. So check that out. And if you've enjoyed today's episode, make sure you subscribe and tell someone else. Appreciate your support. I'll see you next time. This is Everyday Leadership.